listening to Pregnancy Uncut, a new podcast dedicated to telling the untold and unspoken stories of pregnancy complications. We are your hosts, Drs. Alex Umbers and Cara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning, heads up guys, this podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications and it may be confronting. Welcome to episode one of Pregnancy Uncut. So Alex, it's our first episode. You have very, very kindly and bravely volunteered to be in the hot seat. How does it feel? Oh, I'm shaking in my boots. Are you? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, you know, as a doctor, we're so used to asking the questions. We're not the ones sort of telling our story. No. Uh, We kind of hide behind that veneer of, Yes, I guess it's power of sorts, Mm. isn't it? Um, So it feels, I can feel my heart in my chest. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And, you know, I think this is, I don't think my story is anything dramatic or it's not the worst case scenario, but it is a story. And my reason for sharing it is really to kind of be the first cab off the ranks and say, yeah, I'm willing to talk about this. I'm willing to share it. Mm. And I hope that people can get something from the story for themselves or for people that they are supporting going through something similar. Absolutely. And Let's say straight out, it's 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 going to be hard to talk about. It's some some pretty pretty real stuff that you went through, and and I know the first time you told me the story, I was in tears, and I might be again today. Um, but it's so important, isn't it? Just mm. talking about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and like you said, we are both doctors, and doctors make the worst patients. Um, but I think yeah, it's really it's really nice. I think for the first episode to hear you know, you opening up and being a real person and being vulnerable and um, hopefully that that's that sets the 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 trend um, for all the other stories that we're going to hear in our future episodes. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Let's jump in. Okay. So, Alex, you've now got a very beautiful, I must say, little baby. Thank Congratulations. You. Looking wonderful. But it wasn't always so easy, was it? No, um, that this baby was pregnancy number five. Yeah. So unfortunately, we are one of those couples that's had recurrent miscarriage. Okay. Well, that's the first time I've said that out loud. Oh, there you go. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there is one miscarriage that really stands out. Okay. And this episode is a story of that one. Beautiful. So take us back. How did you feel when you found out that you were pregnant at that time? Well, it was really interesting. We were on holiday in Tassie okay. uh, with my husband or husband-to-be at that time. We'd had a beautiful camping trip and uh, he was about to leave and I was about to meet my friends who we were going to do an extreme one-week hike on the coast of Tassie. <laughs> of course. During bushfire season. Of course. And I'd had these weird cravings during our camping trip, lots of pickles, lots of fermented foods. And um, I said, I think I should do a pregnancy test. And we were down in the Salamanca markets. Oh. I went to the pharmacy, 
did the test in the public toilet oh, and so presto, positive. <laughs> so I was probably five weeks at that stage and went hiking with my girlfriends yes. and I had told one of them just in case something happened and the other very good friend I hadn't mentioned and um, during the hike I just couldn't keep up. I was like yes. really straggling, getting nausea. My body was not yeah. cooperating and um, on the final day of the hike I told one of my, uh, the remaining friend, the news and, yeah, we were just overjoyed. Oh, beautiful. And how did things go from then when you came back to the mainland? To the mainland. Well, I went back to work and I was working in obstetrics at the time. Mm. So, you know, you're, you, all those hormones are flying around the ward and mm-hmm. taking care of patients as well as your own. So it can be a bit of a minefield. Um, things were going pretty well. Yeah. At the 12-week scan, which is a routine scan to look for how the fetus is going, the scanner was taking a really long time. Okay. So... My partner was in there with me and I just started to feel uneasy when the room Mm. went quiet. Yeah, you get that feeling. Mm. She was quite an experienced sonographer and uh, just asked us, she didn't say much, she asked us to come back the following day to have the boss scan us. So the next day we came back and uh, the second scan confirmed what she had found, that there were a few or two abnormalities in particular, which on their own weren't Mm life-threatening, but together were suggestive of something not being genetically, you know, correct. Okay. So from there we really started the journey of, um, I guess, going from being overjoyed to Mm. being really worried and concerned and suddenly, you know, the point where you want to tell people and celebrate your news to really feeling like we had to go inwards and hide because of the uncertainty around where this pregnancy would go. And we were starting to have conversations we never expected to have, you know, all the what ifs, where to, you know, the many different options. Mm. In the end, we received some counselling and decided to do what's called a CVS procedure. Okay. And that is obtaining a bit of placental tissue up through the cervix. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite an invasive procedure to determine the genetics of that pregnancy and if there's any abnormalities that could explain what they had seen on the scan. Okay. So we decided to do that. Um, part of that decision was informed by a big fear I had, um, and I don't know where this fear came from, but uh, I think the fear of... Um, uh, It's hard saying this out loud, but I will say it. Mm. The fear of carrying a baby that was dead inside of me and having to deliver that Mm. was probably my worst nightmare. Okay. And so we decided to do the CVS, which is a little bit earlier than the alternative procedure, the amniocentesis, because if there was something that was, you know, not compatible with life Mm. or, you know, a serious congenital issue... Um, I think our thought was we would rather, you know, have a procedure to remove the pregnancy Mm. rather than wait till later when I would labour. Yeah, and know about that sooner rather than later. Exactly. And is that, you're saying we, is that something that that you shared those values or is it something that you really had to to nut out as a couple? It's not something we'd ever talked about. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, it, 
it's also difficult because as a doctor working in women's health, I have a different perspective to my husband who, um, you know, doesn't deal with that stuff every day. Yeah. And we, we did reach the same point where ultimately we wanted the pregnancy to continue if it was healthy and viable but um, we also wanted to be armed with all the information mm. to prepare for the future. Yes. Did it take you long to come to that conclusion or is that something that you came to quickly? I think time. This, mm. this whole experience was characterised by a grey area mm. and there was no black and whites. There was no clear decision along the way. It was really uh, taking one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And there were so many appointments and so many decision points that um, I would say it was more of a process than a, a, you know, clear yes or no. Okay. And so you decided to have the CVS procedure. How did you find that? Um, It's interesting, you know, you consent people for this all the time in your work and Mm. until you're really sitting in the chair, it's, it's hard to describe what that, I guess feeling the vulnerability is mm. um, the person performing the procedure was very experienced and made me feel comfortable. Um, in fact, we had a few laughs during the procedure. <laughs> there was some works going on next door and there was a, um, a, a lot of drilling and soaring going on. And so like it just <laughs> nice felt... Nice and relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> Not the ambiance of, you know, beautiful relaxing music yes. or water flowing. No. Um, just reality. But that that procedure at the time, went relatively straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a few days waiting, uh, which really did our head in. You know, we were at that annex between waiting for a, a green light mm. or, you know, something unexpected. And um, that result actually came back normal. The thing that changed then is, um, of course, I was working night shift and we were moving house. Always. and we're about 15 weeks by okay. this stage. Um, and I started to get a bit of cramping and a little bit of discharge, but nothing really that would make me think things were okay. going south. And it's easy when you, as you say, moving house, working night shift, it's easy to sort of dismiss these things. Is it? Is it something that you got helpful straight away or? No, I, I sat on it. And, yeah. um, literally, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I told my husband that things didn't yeah. feel quite right. And I think this is a bit about trusting your instinct too. Okay. Um, so we drew a line in the sand and said, look, if in two days time things are changing, like let's go and get assessed. Um, and by the two days time rolling around, I, I really started to feel like something was, you know, off kilter. Okay. So we went and I went and got assessed and they tested uh, whether or not my waters had broken mm-hmm. uh, and, in fact, they had. Okay. And you were 15 weeks at mm. this time. Correct. How were you feeling? I was just numb. Mm. I thought we've already been through enough with the abnormal scan and mm. then the testing and the waiting and uh, I thought we were in the clear. Yeah. This was the last thing I expected. Mm. Had you told family and friends at this stage of the pregnancy? I th- I told my mum, mm. which was a big deal, and best friends because they were with us on the journey yes. in that really awkward grey zone. Um, but we hadn't really made it public 
my body was changing, so people probably yeah. suspected it. <laughs> <laughs> Too polite to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Scrubs can hide a lot, exactly. but not everything. Um, yeah, so so at that point, things just felt like they were going from bad to worse. Yeah. I think maybe if if you want to give a bit of context about waters breaking at 15 weeks. Yeah, so... It's there's nothing good about your waters breaking at 15 weeks. So it's it's a, a situation that you you really don't want to have, and you don't want to tell anyone that that's happened to because very occasionally pregnancies can continue um, after the waters are broken that early and continue to a point where the baby might survive, um, but that's very rare. And even if the baby does get to the point where they are old enough to survive on the outside, they they very commonly would have lots of problems. So in particular, breathing problems. The baby needs the water around them to develop their lungs. And if they're in the uterus with no water, their lungs just don't develop. And the other thing is their limbs can get contractures when they're not free to move. So it's a really rocky road. Most, most women who break their waters that early in the pregnancy will sadly lose the pregnancy and um, it can be a decision that the woman and her family make to not continue with the pregnancy because the outcomes are so dire um, or it can be a decision that's taken out of um, that family's hands because infection might develop or um, you go into labour and the baby comes. So it's 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 not a nice it's not a nice conversation to have. And there's very very little silver linings that we can we can talk about when when someone goes through what you did. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think I knew that, but I just didn't want to believe it. Mm. So we chose the path of continuing with the pregnancy and holding some hope. We knew yeah. it was very rare for the hole to seal over and the waters to reform. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had various opinions about what sort of time frame was reasonable in which to give that, mm-hmm. uh, given the sort of um, heavy mental health impact it was having on us waiting. Mm. That waiting period looked like um, we were getting a scan every two days, okay, uh, going back to the hospital and being scanned by different people. Uh, of whom knew the story and we, you know, I was trying to remain somewhat anonymous also yes. working within the unit. So that yeah. was another dynamic at play. And I think every time that probe went on my uterus, I was just so torn between wanting to see a baby floating in fluid yes. and then the reality of seeing a little baby squished up still with a heartbeat. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think the the repeated scans it, it was necessary because it gave us time yes. to i guess accept the trajectory this pregnancy was going to have yes but at the same time the discomfort of sitting there looking at this little baby and thinking you know mm. we we may not get to meet you was really uncomfortable mm. did you look at the screen each time and see your baby I really vacillated. Mm. I think at times I did. I would glance, especially towards the last Mm. scans, um, with that question in mind, like, is this the last time? Or, you know, that I think intrinsically as humans, we're we're kind of wired to have hope and optimism. Mm. And naturally I'm an optimistic person, so even though we were in a dire situation, I, I kept hoping and yeah. that I guess that was the reason to continue. Mm. 
Um, did any part of you, knowing knowing the uphill battle that you were facing in that if you if you did get to that time where baby might survive, that even then it would be, uh, you know, very difficult for baby um, in terms of complications, did any part of you, want, you know, hope that when they put the scanner on that maybe the baby's heart had stopped and that decision might be made for you as opposed to you making the active decision mm. to not continue the pregnancy? Yep. I think I think at this point we were so numb and overwhelmed and exhausted. We didn't really know what to hope for mm. or, or to think. I don't mm. think things were entirely clear at that stage. I th- and were you still working, Alex? Were you still – you were going to work looking after pregnant women, pretending to be happy when they were <laughs> babies were born everywhere? I, I did up until a point, okay. but I think – yeah, once once the waters had broken, yes. that that was my point to step away, and it was really only other staff giving me permission, saying "Go home, be with your partner. You guys need time." Yeah. That I felt comfortable doing that. I yeah. think we we have this mentality as doctors, or we fall prey to this mentality that we always have to be on, we have to be available, we have to be the hero fixing yeah. things. But actually, we were the ones that needed to be cared for. So mm. yeah, a bit of a role reversal there. Yeah. Um, going back to your question about the heartbeat though, I think there, there did come a point over those two weeks and, and we almost got to 17 weeks where we thought this, you know, we came to terms mm. with what was happening and the, the natural progression mm. that nature had chosen for us. Okay. And the heart did stop beating. Okay. And there was some relief initially not so much with the outcome, but that the decision had been taken out of our hands. Okay, yeah. And um, that was actually quite a special interaction. Um, the obstetrician that was taking care of us that day that did the last scan was a one of those old grandfatherly types. Yes, been working. <laughs> I know in, them. <laughs> they probably trained you, right? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I would speculate he's in his seventies. Okay. Anyway, he is a lovely man and lovely clinician and he really sat with us in that room when that baby had passed away inside of me and said some very kind things that stayed with me. Uh, First of all, he really acknowledged the loss. It's a late miscarriage. uh, You know, as I said earlier, there there are plenty worse things that can happen, but to us that this really was the worst-case scenario, losing this pregnancy. And he said, this wound is always going to be in your heart. Mm. And it really stuck with me. And I think for someone who hadn't really allowed herself to celebrate or embrace the pregnancy, I hadn't really appreciated the loss and the grief Mm. that we're about Mm. to go through. So for him calling it a wound in my heart, that really spoke to me. Okay. Do you think you were protecting yourself? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I don't. I don't really know what yeah. we were. We it, nothing was conscious at this stage. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about how you felt lying in the ultrasound room when when those words were spoken that, that your baby had passed. So numb. Mm. Just so numb. Uh, there was a little bit of relief, as yeah. I said, that we hadn't made the decision mm. that was made for us, and that. The greyness had ended. You know, now we were in the zone where the pregnancy mm. was not going to have a good outcome yeah. and we were in the zone of moving towards 
labouring mm. uh, because, you know, around 15 weeks, it's it's generally too late to have a surgical removal. So uh, we were looking at labouring. Okay. So what happened next? Well, uh, we went home and I had started to get cramps. I was being monitored for infection and the plan was to come back and be induced, so artificially induce the labour. But because of the severe infection that was developing around the placenta, my body naturally did it. Okay. Um, Fortunately, things, I guess, escalated quickly uh, in a sort of merciful turn of events. And uh, it kind of caught us off guard happening a bit earlier because we didn't have time to talk about all the things that would happen afterwards. Okay. Um, But the labour probably happened over three hours and um, severe pain, like just nothing, like nothing I've ever experienced before. Do you have good good memories of or good recollection of what happened or does it feel a blur in retrospect? Uh, yeah, really interesting question. I feel both that I, because of the severity of the pain, it mm. was so exquisite, it took me to another place. It mm. really distracted me, I guess, maybe on a spiritual level, if I can say that, um, where I wasn't really present to the traumatic experience that was unfolding. Okay. But then on the other side, it's like my my memory of all the things that happened acutely before and after was so on. Like I can remember smells. I can remember TV shows that were on in the room okay. afterwards. I can remember, you know, word for word what different people said. Wow. So it's a strange sort yeah. of experience to live through. Tell me about the birth. The birth. Um, well, we went into a room uh, which, having worked in the unit, uh, I have heard it referred to as the badness room. Mm. It's where the badness happens. Yeah, every birth suite has a badness room. I'm pretty sure that's not the official term, but it's sadly it's often a bit further away from the other room. So hopefully you have that um, quietness and you don't hear other babies screaming and women labouring. But um we need one, don't we? We need yeah. a, we need a badness room. Yeah, unfortunately, and it's the kind of room you never want to end up. You in. do not want, and you no. don't want to be put in the badness room. But in that room, uh, there is a double bed, so um, my partner was with me, holding me for a lot of the labour. We had a, a midwife who was very experienced and was talking me through um, what to expect, and a doctor in there as well. And they just they just stayed with us, mm. you know, for the whole process. Mm. And we were essentially undisturbed and just let nature take its course. Um, I used a bit of gas. We, I, we had a drip put in for mm. some morphine because generally with these early losses you want to – uh, now I'm putting my doctor hat on. <laughs> Minimise the pain, but of we course. didn't. We didn't have time for that. We didn't have had yeah. time to draw up the morphine, and mm-hmm. it just happened so quickly. Did you hold your baby? I did not. Um, and these are some of the scenarios that we were presented with as options in terms of, I guess, parenting after mm. the loss of a baby. Um, and we just we, yeah, we weren't. We didn't even think. Mm. Um, about what we would be faced with. So 
the option is to hold the baby, have photos taken, have hand and footprints mm. um, to – and then, yeah, what do you do with the baby before 20 mm. weeks? Because there's this artificial line in the sand, isn't there, where – it somehow magically goes from a mm. miscarriage to a stillbirth at 20 weeks yep. and we were before then so it's not a it's not a legal death so we didn't we're not forced to send the baby to a funeral, funeral home, home or any yeah. of that stuff um we opted not to see the baby we do have photos on a, a USB which okay. I've never looked at <laughs> no do you think you will i'm not sure okay at this stage, I don't have a desire to. I wonder what that baby looked like. Mm. But I also think, you know, a little baby who was starved of amniotic fluid and, you know, wouldn't have been growing very well and with severe infection, it may not be the picture I wish to have seen. Okay. So that was probably what informed the decision to not physically interact with the baby. Um, we did get some hand and footprints, which yeah. I have. Um, yeah. Does any part of you wish that you had? The, the part of me that wishes is the part that just wishes it never happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I wish that we hadn't had those abnormal scans. I wish that my waters hadn't broken. Mm. I wish that the heart hadn't stopped beating. Those are the things I wish for. Um, mm. rather than seeing the baby physically. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about going home from the hospital. Oh, so surreal. So we were faced with the decision of what to do with the remains. Mm. And, you know, as I keep saying, we had NFI. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, and my husband actually called, called this one, and I'm glad he did. Uh, we were sort of, I guess, avoiding the issue and distancing ourselves and saying, oh, let's get a funeral de- director to take it to the funeral home and, okay. and spread the ashes and uh, get, that, get the cremation done. Uh, but he said, no, let, let's take the baby with us and transport it to the funeral home as a kind of final act of okay. parenting. And that was, I guess, both a, a beautiful gesture but a very – Odd one too because they have these little angel boxes in the labour ward for babies like ours that have not taken a breath. And we had we had a little boy and he was put in a box, a blue box with okay. a little bear on it. I remember it vividly. <laughs> and we carried it outside, strangely, in a supermarket shopping bag because... Wow. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like what if I run into someone I know from work or, you know, like it's the last place you want to be seen, right? Exactly. So here we are with our baby in a box in a supermarket bag and we put it on the back of the car and drive to the funeral home. When we get there, uh, again, such a strange experience. It was um, a very respectful place but not a place we wanted to be. And Mm. what I distinctly remember is there was a Bruce Springsteen song playing in the background on the radio, Born in the USA. I was like, born, born, born. I do not want to hear that. (laughs) Wow. It's amazing the things that stick in your memory, the songs and the smells, like you said. Mm. Um, Anyway, we carried our baby in the box and to one of the side rooms to do all the paperwork to have the baby cremated. 
and the what I remember is the glass. It was a glass table, and mm. it was really wobbly. And while I was signing the paperwork, probably nervous as hell anyway, I remember like everything jiggling, yeah. and then yeah. looking beyond the funeral director to all the very tacky yeah. sort of monuments and plaques that we could choose from, and I just wanted to get out yeah. of there. Did it feel like you know almost an out of body experience? You know how, how did how did we end up here? This yeah. is not this is not how things were supposed to go. No, it was it was an out of body experience essentially, like yeah. looking down on ourselves yes. in that box in that glass table, thinking, "What the hell?" Yeah. <sighs> so then, then the grief and the healing begins. Mm. Tell me about that. Oh, long road for us. Okay. And um, touch wood, I. You know, I haven't lost someone close to me for a while, so I haven't really had grief as part of my life recently um, and coming into it pretty naive. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you leave the hospital, they give you all these brochures about places to reach out to and, you know, given we had coped relatively well, I thought, in the whole process uh, leading to the labour, I kind of just assumed that we would be fine. Okay. Bow, bow. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. <laughs> no. Surprise. The first wheel to come off was really the relationship one. Oh, okay. You know, we had been so solid and my partner is just so strong and so supportive and he was suffering through all of this too, but he had really kept the boat sailing Okay. Um, through the whole process. And when we got home, he just fell apart. Wow. And so we're in a pattern of me reaching out to him when I was struggling and leaning on him and he just wasn't available anymore. He had to do his own grieving journey. And it created quite a lot of tension, I suppose, Mm. if I'm speaking honestly. Um, It's not that we didn't love each other. We were just grieving in different ways at different times and um, Mm. it's not a good combo. Wow. We ended up getting some grief counselling and couples counselling when we were just couldn't resolve things we would normally resolve, like having stupid fights and stuff that wasn't us. And uh, what came to pass is that we were really expressing ungrieved grief. So that was the time to really take a step back and recognise what had happened mm. and start to process it. Mm. You mentioned it, it sort of it took you by surprise, the intensity of the feelings. Did it last... Did it last for a long time or is it something that you were able to work through relatively quickly? Grief for me is kind of like a waves. You know, you have your okay days where you're like, yeah, I'm swimming or I'm walking on top of the water and things are fine and then suddenly tsunami comes and knocks you off your feet and says, I'm just dragging you back down to size, sister. Yeah. So that happened a fair bit. And I think in particular – this stage is for, for me, in the beginning it was um, I actually got home and because I had time off, which never happens as a doctor, no. I was like, oh, think of all the things I can do. Yeah. I'm going to restore some furniture, do the garden beds, paint the house. Oh, Look at me go so, so functional. <laughs> and my husband was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Stop. And then I just crashed in a heap. Then I had my Couch stage in the trackies, not really getting dressed, not showering. Yeah. Um, the alcohol stage, yeah. not drinking a lot, but drinking more than I would normally, mm-hmm. just to, I guess, numb a bit of the pain. And feeling like you, you needed it. 
Just something. Yeah. Um, the takeaway stage. Can't be asked cooking. I don't think you've come out of I'm that I'm not stage, doing that. Um, and then, but during the, during those first few weeks, I think the thing that really carried us when we were broken was, um, our special friendships and people just turning up, supporting us as we were accepting us in all forms. They may not have had the words, but just by turning up and acknowledging what we were going through, even if they said the wrong thing, it didn't matter. Mm. Mm. And did you... Did you find that people were were very open in coming to support you or that were there some people who perhaps found it too hard or, or didn't know what to say and so stayed away? Yeah, yep. Quite polarised responses um, and not that I pretended to know what I needed. Like people may have been asking, I, mm. I, I didn't know what I needed, but there were people in our lives that surprised us by the distance that was created by the experience mm. And I don't know if that was because they didn't have the words or they were scared to upset us. But I guess one of the things I really want to convey is when you're going through grief and heartbreak, you can't really make it worse. So staying silent on the issue is um, just makes the wound deeper because okay. it's not acknowledging what the person's going through. So it sounds like some some pretty dark places at the start when you came home from hospital. How did you start to crawl back from that space and and get back to you know, normal life? So I took a few weeks off and started to go back to work, not in obstetrics, and I think that was a good move to have some space from it. Definitely. There was enough triggers going on, you know, you turn up to a yoga class and there's a whole lot of pregnant bellies coming out and you're constantly reminded of all the things you are not. Those everyday moments would often catch me off guard yeah. in the months that followed. Um, friends who had similar due dates mm. or anniversaries or trimester milestones that we weren't mm. celebrating mm. were other triggers. One particular thing that was really good for our healing journey is when we got pregnant again. Oh. Yes. And we both felt we wanted to create a clean space for this pregnancy to be celebrated. And we decided to eventually uh, collect the ashes, which I had been avoiding picking up for six months. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's actually directly on the road to work. So you drive, drive past it every day. Oh, no, I was driving the long way to oh. avoid the place, but in a really unconscious way. So... Uh, yeah, I guess that's probably a symptom of how we weren't yeah. coping. But when we eventually picked up the ashes, we did it together and we found a beautiful space locally to us on a headland that represents, I guess, a space where we can be honest and open and we decided to spread the ashes there. It was mm -hmm. a beautiful evening. The sun was setting completely still. And we walked out together at low tide to the edge of the ocean mm. on the rock pools and opened the little pottery that the ashes were in and started to spread them in the ocean, which was really beautiful. And then a huge gust of wind picked up and blew the ashes right back at us. <laughs> That's great. Yep. Was it a... Was that a was that a sad moment or was that, you know, sort of a, a moment of closure? How did you feel? I felt like we were really closing the loop mm. and saying goodbye for the final time. 
and creating space for this new pregnancy. Did you choose to wait or had you been trying to get pregnant as soon as you came home? Or do you feel you needed that? Yeah, good question. Space? Um, it probably wasn't that conscious. And in fact, I remember the grandfatherly obstetrician just telling us, it was one of my questions to him, and he said, you'll, you'll know when you're ready. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of operating on that premise. Um, and it was about six months later that we felt ready to try again. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. So, Alex, when you got the next positive pregnancy test, how did that feel? Did you allow yourself to celebrate? I really wanted to celebrate, but because of my mental state, which was primarily anxiety, I, I couldn't dive into that pregnancy and really embrace it. Mm. I wanted to, but mentally I I was scared. Okay, okay. And this was pregnancy number? Number four. Pregnancy four. And no baby. No baby. No baby to hold. No. Um, so we lost that pregnancy at around 11 weeks. And uh, it was just really like one step forward, three steps back. Mm. We, yeah, we thought, why is this happening again? Did you feel like this is something that that happened to people, or did you feel did you feel alone in the process? Mentally, like academically, I know that recurrent miscarriage is a thing. On a really emotional level. I was just thinking, why are we that couple? Mm. Did you think about giving up? No. Yeah. I think we would always come back to we really want to experience parenthood Mm. and having our own family. And so in a way it took a lot of courage to keep trying, keep going back there. Mm. And your partner, was there times when he wanted to protect you from any more heartache? I think after we lost the fourth pregnancy, he was worried about whether or not it would happen and wondered, you know, is it worth it? Is it worth going through this potential heartache again? And then pregnancy number five came along. No, number five. Number five. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, fortunately we get pregnant quite easily. And husband was a bit disappointed we didn't get to practice more. Oh, still time. <laughs> um, but this pregnancy went straight forward. Amazing. Yeah. Are you still pinching yourself? We cannot believe it. Yep. After all we've been through, uh, I mean, there was definitely, in, you know, a bit of a up and down with pregnancy, even though it was normal. Normal, yeah. normal, normal, but still felt hard at times, especially when we had reached like milestones yes. of the previous losses. Like, would we get to the second trimester? Would we get to 17 weeks? And did you allow yourself to enjoy the pregnancy towards the end when you you could see the finish line inside? Yeah, it it's such an interesting question. I would probably say yes, but if you ask my friends who would be offering us hand-me-downs, it became apparent that I I hadn't fully embraced it. Mm. I I wasn't preparing myself for a a normal healthy outcome. And I was, I remember at about 25 weeks, a friend said, hey, I've got all the stuff, do you want it? I was like, no, 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 we're we're Mm. not collecting stuff yet. Even though, you know, all the evidence about the pregnancy suggested it was healthy, I I still had this reluctance about, I guess it was self-preservation in a way, Um, but unnecessary in this case, thankfully. 
looking back at it all now, holding your beautiful little baby, what what would you tell Alex of that first pregnancy, going mm. through everything that you did? I would say you are more than your miscarriages. Mm. It's so consuming that you can't really see all the other aspects of your life, that you're just focused on what you don't have. And I think it's that practice of gratitude for the things you do have that can carry you through these difficult times. Has it, has it, it's changed you as a person, I'm sure, but has it also changed you as a doctor when you are working with women who are going through something similar or, or any point in their pregnancy? Has it changed how you approach that? Yeah, so much. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it has totally shifted the, the way in which I practice around some of these difficult issues. I think also as a doctor myself and revealing vulnerabilities, you know, we're used to sailing the ship, you know, being in charge and doing the fixing and doing the problem solving. But when you're actually the one on the other end of that, it totally, it's it's like an existential shift, yeah. I suppose, in how you approach life and taking care of other vulnerable people. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that is coming out of this discussion is is you were at several times sort of taken aback or surprised by by the intensity um, of your feelings and responses to what happened. Do do you think that's that's a sentiment that's shared by people in the community that they generally it might be underappreciated the emotional impact that these things can have on women and their partners. Well. Yeah, point in case. I, yeah. I think I totally underestimate it. And I've only, you know, almost two years later, beginning to unpack it and understand the level of loss and, and grief and mm. how long it can take to work with it. I've um, read a few inspirational quotes mm, recently that excellent. have really stuck with me. And one of them is around, um, you know, time, the passage of time and its relationship to grief and the idea that the the loss never really leaves you but over time you accumulate the skills with which to deal with it. And that's reflected, I think, in our new baby, you know, having him doesn't necessarily take away the loss or, you know, balance things out. It It's just the passage of time which is, has made it easier. Mm. The, the other thing that really resonates with me, and I don't know who said it, Hopefully one of our listeners can let us know. <laughs> but understanding that grief is can be referred to as love with no place to go. Yeah. So that even though grief is this heavy thing that can sort of be a, a yoke around your neck, it, it also represents love underlying it. Yeah. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for telling that story. It's There's a lot in it. Um, there's a lot of things that are difficult to talk about and a lot of things that most people, if they had that experience, wouldn't wouldn't talk about at all. And I'm sure there's someone who will listen to it who will appreciate you sharing that um, and it takes a lot of strength to do that, so thank you. What would you say to someone who might be listening who is has experienced a miscarriage or even recurrent miscarriage? To that woman and her support people, partners, friends, family, 
don't don't brush it over. Mm. Even though it's in a loss of a little life, it's not necessarily a little loss. So reach out to your people, ask for support. You are not alone in this. You are not the only experience, a person going through this and there is a community out there willing to be on this journey with you. So that's your story. How does it feel to tell it? Oh, well, I certainly um, feel more relaxed than when I started. Excellent. My heart's no longer racing. My feet are on the ground and I don't think I'm sweating as much. <laughs> but to be honest, it, it feels good talking about it. And for a while, two years ago, it didn't. Mm. And, and now feels like a, the right time. Mm. I wish that I'd had the um, wherewithal to share the story earlier. It's been a really empowering process. That's it for today. If you got something out of this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Also, we love hearing from you. If you have feedback or suggestions, email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on Instagram. If you or someone you know wants to share their story with us, we'd love to hear from you. Talk soon.